Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that any man, when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. While the meat was boiling, he used a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All the fork brought up, the priests would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated offerings of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he went hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they would lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of, the meet, of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God, <clears throat> and then, and there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above my fattening offering above by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people of Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that my house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that will, there will not be an old man in your house. Then I will distress you, look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom shall not be cut off from the altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve, out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of man. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up myself a faithful, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is, and everyone who is left 
in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. We're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this story together. This past summer, August 14th, the Meeting House, uh, which is the largest church in Ontario, released a statement about its now former senior pastor, Bruxy Cavey. In an investigation led by a third party, the church discovered that Bruxy had acted in a way that, quote, constituted sexual abuse by a church leader. Now, if you remember this, it was a shocking moment for many of us who've been around the Ontario church scene for a while. Not only because it was Bruxy, but also because he's just one of the many high-profile church leaders who've had significant moral failings. But he was also the closest to home for many of us. Some of you have attended the meeting house. Some of us have family and friends who, who did or still do attend the meeting house and were left in the wake of that with a lot of questions and frustration and anger and even just sadness because we expect to find sin, you know, out there in the world. We're not that surprised, you know, when a famous CEO has issues with infidelity, but we don't expect that, or, or because we don't expect that people who aren't Christians should live like Christians. But what happens when we find sin inside the church? What happens when it's our leaders who are abusing their positions? What should we think? How should we feel? What should we do? I know that for a lot of people, the fall of a church leader throws into doubt everything they believe. It doesn't just disrupt trust in that one leader. It can disrupt trust in the church, trust in God himself. And I personally know people who've staggered away from the meeting house, unsure not just of the meeting house, but of everything. What could God possibly be up to? See, we come across sinful church leaders in 1 Samuel 2. Both Eli and his sons are sinning. Not to the same degree, not in the same way, but the spiritual leadership of God's people, it, it's rotting. And we don't get access to sort of like the average Israel, the average layperson's view of the situation. But I bet if we could go and interview them, I think they'd sound a lot like modern believers trying to make sense of broken church situations. As we stare at this story, I think we're left wondering, what is God up to? What is he doing? What should we think? What should we believe about God when we come across stories and church leaders like these? Let's take a look at it. I want to talk about, first, we'll talk about the sinful priests and sinful parents, all the stuff going on with Eli and his sons. That's going to take a bunch of time. And then I want to talk about God in the background and then God in the foreground. What is God doing while this stuff is going on? Now, you may remember when I, last week I said, when it comes to narratives and stories in the scriptures, uh, there's showing and there's telling. And most often, narratives are just showing us something, like this happened, there's not a lot of commentary on it. But right here, at the very beginning of this text, we are being told something. Look at verse 12. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. <laughs> there's not a lot of beating around the bush, not a lot of nuance, no Canadian niceness. These guys, worthless. And the narrator goes on further. They didn't even know God. Now, when it comes to the scriptures, when, you, when someone says, oh, they didn't know God, the narrator does not mean they are ignorant about God. Hophni and Phinehas knew plenty of things about God. He, what, what the narrator means is they had no relationship with God. They don't care about God. They don't listen to God. They don't follow God. They don't know him. Worthless men, not even believers. Now imagine for a moment that some week, you know, I'm, I'm out of town and a guest preacher is here and he's sitting in the front. He's, you know, dressed up. 
like a preacher or whatever, I suppose, you know, like a normal pastor, and it comes time for the sermon, and whoever's leading the service that day, they step up to the microphone, you know, and say, oh, so-and-so is here uh, to preach, he's the guest preacher, um, he's worthless, and I'm pretty sure he's not a Christian. Like, 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 what an introduction. You're like, well, I'm not listening to this guy. You know, like, I, we can leave at this point. That's what the narrator is doing with Hophni and Phineas. It's like, these guys are worthless. It's blunt, scathing. Now, why does he say that? Well, I think as the story unfolds, you're going to agree with his assessment. He gives us two reasons why these priests are so worthless. Let's look at the first, and it takes a little bit to untangle, so, you know, try to hang with me. If you go read the law of God in Leviticus, there are laws given, they're, they're, they kind of get complicated, but they, are, they explain how priests and their families are provided for. It's like an old-fashioned HR and salary guide, you know, and, and because priests, they worked at the temple. They didn't have normal jobs. They relied on the gifts that people brought to the temple so that when they were doing their temple service, that would provide for the families of the priests. So when an animal sacrifice was brought to the temple, you know, bring a goat or whatever, um, they would get part of the meat from any animal that was brought. It's about 10%, maybe 20% of the animal. I'm not a, not a specialist in this, these things, but they, get, they got a few different chunks. And the rest they'd take and they'd sacrifice partly to God. They partly like would burn up some of the fat, some of the other things, and partly they would cook it and they'd eat it at the temple and it would be celebratory and whatever. Now what Hophni and Phinehas had set up at this time is that the family would come you know, with their animal and they would take their normal priestly share great, no problem, all sounds good. But then, while they were taking what was, what was left and they were cooking it and being boiled or, you know, in a pot and all these things, they'd send their servant around, and he had this little trident, this little, this little uh, you know, fork with three prongs on it, and he'd, and he'd stick it into the pot, so think like a big pot of boiling water, and it's like, well, whatever comes up, I also get that, a second share for old Hophni and Phineas. But that wasn't all they were doing. They were going even further. In verse 15, it says, they started sending their servant around before the meat was cooked. So before it went into the pot, before the fat was burned off, and they were like, give us some raw steaks. Give, give, give us some raw cuts of meat. And if the people are like, hey, just can we do this? Sac-? They're like, no, no. They threaten them with physical violence. And in this last step, the most egregious part is that if you go read Leviticus 3, which admittedly is a tough read, but the, in Leviticus 3 it says, you're supposed to burn the fat off the meat as an offering to God. So that's when the people are saying, can we just burn the fat off first? They're trying to follow the law. And Hophni and Phinehas then, they're not just stealing, they're not just being greedy, they're actually stealing from God. Leviticus 3 has this great verse. It says, the fat belongs to the Lord. And, and Hophni and Phinehas are like, no, actually, could, it kind of belongs to us. Now, it's hard to translate this into like modern times because we don't do a lot of, you know, animal sacrifices and things, but let me just give it a shot. As you're probably aware, the church pays me a salary to be the pastor here. That salary comes from money that you all donate to the church. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm getting that salary. But imagine I set up a system where we convert all your credit card donations, all your bank transfers, any, any checks you give in, we convert that all to cash, we put it in a giant bag, and every week, as like a special little treat for Ben, I get to stick my fist into the bag, and whatever cash I can grab, whatever coins and, and, and bills or whatever, whatever cash I can grab, that also belongs to me. You know, a little, little extra special Friday for me or something. So that, that system's set up. But then after a year or two of that system, I take a third step, I send you an email 
and it's got instructions in it. It's like, you know how you were used to give 100% of your donations directly to the church? Well, what I want you to do is a little bit different. I want you to divide it up. Send 80% of your donations to the church. I still need my salary, by the way. Still need my little fun bag of cash. But please direct the other 20% directly to me. Just a straight e-transfer to my bank account. Oh, now, I'm, now I'm triple dipping. I got, I got three different things going on, and I'm, now I'm taking directly from God's portion. This is sort of what the priests are doing. They've gone beyond their allotted amount. They are resorting to things like greed, theft, threats of honor, or threats of violence, dishonor to God. They've said, functionally, they've said, I prefer a prime cut of meat to godliness. I'd rather have my stomach full than my soul in order. But that's not all they're doing. If you skip down to verse 22, we also find out they're laying with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. That's a, a euphemism, of course. They're having sex with the ushers and greeters at the temple. Like, imagine a church where it's not a place to confess sin, but to commit it. Like, these men are, are sitting with their bodies and, and, their, and their souls. They're sitting against God and other people. Listen, the narrator is exactly right to say they are worthless and they know nothing of God. But strangely, they aren't the only sinful ones in the story. Eli, according to verse 22, is very old at this point. But he still knows what's going on. He still, he still hears all these reports of, of all these evil things his sons are doing, uh, how, they, how they treat the women at the temple, how, how they have been you know, changing all these sacrifices. And in verse 24, there's even a hint that the news about their despicable behavior is getting out beyond the bounds of Israel. It's like, oh, the Moabites have, you know, have heard about this. The surrounding nations are aware of what these priests are doing. And if you look at verse 23, it seems like Eli is trying to do his best. He rebukes them. He says, says you have to stop. And if you look at verse 25, he says, if you continue to sin against God, there's going to be no one to mediate. The priests were supposed to mediate, but if the priests sin against God, uh, Eli says, no one's going to step in between you. It's going to go badly for you. But they won't listen. And we aren't actually sure at this point in the story, if all we had was this, if it cut off right here, we aren't sure if Eli's at fault. Maybe he's done a good job of parenting. Maybe he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Maybe it's 100% his son's and 0% his fault. We are not sure at this point. But the mysterious visit from this unnamed man of God clears things up. Because he shows up, and in verse 27, the man says, Oh, look, at, uh, God chose your forefathers. He's chosen you. You, you. You've been especially selected to offer sacrifices amongst any man in Israel that could have been chosen. It's like, you were the guy. But then in verse 29, the man of God levels an accusation from God to Eli. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And look at this, and honor your sons above me. Eli is indeed at fault. Now his sons are responsible for their behavior, no doubt. But Eli has decided, according to what the man of God said, he's decided at some point to choose his sons over God. See, as, as high priest, or it's not like formal yet, but as, as the highest priest we have, Eli had the right to remove his sons from the priesthood. When he found out they were sinning, he said, you, you can't be a priest anymore. You can't do that here. More than, ver- he could have gone beyond verbal rebuke, but he didn't. Now, we don't get a whole lot of their story. We don't know what the early life of Hophni and Phinehas were like. We don't know how long the sinning's been going on for. We don't know when things got off track. But I think it's quite terrifying to me as a parent 
that at some point, Eli chose to honor his kids over God. And God says, I'm going to hold you responsible for that. Most parents understand we would do just about anything for our children. Like, we try to give them whatever we can give them. And sometimes, and I know some of you have done this, you've changed houses or jobs or cars or schools or schedules or a million other things to try to give your children an opportunity or a chance to succeed or go to university or whatever. But with all good things in life, and listen, children are among the best, not the easiest, but the best, with all good things comes a temptation to love it, to love our children more than God. To honor them over God. Now, I will say this. Many times as a parent, you don't have to choose. You can have your proverbial pie and ice cream. You can honor your kids and honor God. You can do both. You can take your kid to hockey and to church. You you can do both. You You can correct them and you can cuddle with them. Most times, maybe nearly all the time, honoring God and honoring your children, they're not at odds. Please hear me say that. But there will be sometimes when you have to make gut-wrenching decisions as a parent between God and your children and to honor God over your kids. To choose between a fundamental loyalty to God or to your children. Maybe it will mean refraining from activities that keep them out of church too often. Maybe it will mean just some sort of confrontation of some sin that they're involved in. Sometimes you will have to say no to something on their behalf and they're not going to like it. I don't know. But we do know for old Eli... At some point in Eli's story, his boys displaced his God as the center of his life. And as you can see, if you do that, if you walk down that road, if you choose your kids over God, if children become the controlling center of your life, it ends up doing them no favors. It doesn't actually help them. Allowing sin to go unchecked in the life of your children actually harms them. And there's this incredibly sobering moment. If you look at verse 25, it says, Hophni and Phinehas, they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, we all get uncomfortable. And just like last week, remember we talked about God had closed Hannah's womb. We're like, we see an action attributed to God that makes us all feel a little bit uneasy. We read this verse and we're like, what? Why wouldn't God let them repent? Why would he prefer punishment over mercy? I think to understand this, we must read verse 25 in light of what we've already heard about Hophni and Phinehas. They were two men so entrenched in sin, so uncaring of what God wanted, that it appears that at this point God's just letting them go. He's removing any any remaining grace from their life, and now they are functionally deaf and blind to any pleas to change. And the example of Hophni and Phinehas, I think, should, should worry us. Because it reminds us, there comes a point in our lives that if we persist in sin, there'll be some sort of tipping point. And your heart can get so hard and so entrenched and so resistant to God that you just can't come back. Now, let's try to sum up some of this stuff. What do we learn from Eli and Hophni and Phinehas about sin? We learn this. Underneath surface sins are disordered loves. 
So Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, their sins are different, but they all have the same problem kind of underneath. They all loved something too much. God got displaced from his rightful place on the throne of their lives, and something else took it. Eli loved his kids too much. They became the controlling love of his heart. Hophni and Phinehas, they loved the good life. They wanted good food and good drink and pleasure. That was the center of their lives. It began to dominate their lives. I find it easy to read this story as a distant observer and be like, don't have these problems. These guys better go get themselves sorted out. Well, that's just the surface sins. The problem is their hearts aren't in the right order. And guess what? We have that problem too. They don't love right. Eli should love his sons, but he loved them more than he loved God. The the, the boys, they loved a well-cooked steak, but when you start stealing to feed your stomach, there begins to be a problem. See, I think a lot of us in church world, we assume that we are fundamentally thinking beings. And if we're thinking beings, then the main goal of, of church and everything is just let's deposit enough good ideas into our, you know, our mind containers and then we'll become holy. But that's just not how it works most of the time. I mean, think about these guys. Do you really think Eli didn't know the right thing to do? Was it a knowledge issue for Eli? Did Hophni and Phinehas need more theological study to understand, hey, maybe we shouldn't do these things? James K. Smith says, our loves are like gravity. And what he means by that is that we are irresistibly pulled, you know, like we're we're being sucked towards the things we love. And if our loves are disordered or corrupted, then all of the good ideas in the world won't save us. Martin Luther once wrote, whatever your heart clings to, whatever it confides in, well, that's really your God. So Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, they may have looked like priests of the one true God, but inwardly they're bowing down, they're making sacrifices to something else. And in that mirror, we see ourselves. We're not so different. Our parenting, our love lives, our pursuit of pleasure, that's just a few of the places it shows up. All right, we got to move on. God in the background, part two. First Samuel, I've been arguing, is, is fundamentally a theological history. So we have some bad priests. Okay. What is God doing in response? Well, the narrator has dropped some little Easter eggs, some little sprinkled some clues into the text. First clue is in verse 11, and you're like... Verse 11 isn't in our reading. It's not. Uh, but right before the comment about Eli's sons being worthless, here's what verse 11 says. I'll read it for you. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So back to back, verse 11 and 12. Samuel was ministering to the Lord. Eli's sons, worthless. Right back to back. Now look down at verse 17. It's kind of a summary statement. Here's all the bad stuff uh, Hophni and Phinehas were doing. Now look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Now, a linen ephod, it's kind of like this white, whitish apron, uh, and it was just commonly worn by priests. So again, we have a contrast. Look at all this evil stuff Eli's sons are doing. Oh, Samuel, clothed in white, ministering, you know, over here. Next clue, verse 21. Hannah's doing great, by the way. She has five additional children. You know, all of us modern parents, we're just wimps. She has five more kids uh, after Samuel. But look at the last line of of verse 21. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old. 
Consider the contrast. Young growing boy, born of a faithful mother who's now very fruitful, by the way, next to an old man who can no longer control his children. Fourth clue, verse 25. Hophni and Phinehas would not listen to the voice of their father. Verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and also with men. Eli's sons, evil. <laughs> Samuel, growing and succeeding in every way. God loves him, all the people love him. That, like the narrator, it's kind of blunt. He's showing us something. Over and over, Samuel is contrasted with the old order. Eli and his sons are over here. Samuel's over here. The contrast is stark. And the comparisons are often back-to-back, I think, to maximize impact. In fact, if you have like a regular Bible with the paragraph headings, I don't think it helps you here because it keeps breaking up those sections when they're meant to be read, I think, back-to-back. Oh, I got got distracted there. Um, See, over and over, we get discouraged about what's going on with the bad priests. But the narrator keeps, keeps whispering, don't forget Samuel. We get hung up on all the negatives, but the text whispers, Samuel's getting bigger, he's getting stronger, everybody likes him. But it's not really about Samuel, really. It's about God operating in the less obvious but still very important ways. God is all over the background of this story. There's a lot of evil going on. It's seemingly unpunished. We'll talk about that in a moment. But God is at work. Samuel's growing up. God is getting him. He's working so that Samuel can be the right leader. You know, the situation with the meeting house with Bruxy was pretty discouraging. If you follow Christian news sort of at large, it's pretty discouraging and overwhelming. Actually, I saw Christianity Today's uh, year-end report. Nearly all of their most read stories featured pastors in moral crisis, churches you know, that have fallen apart. It can feel discouraging when all you hear is all the bad stuff on the surface. But I would remind you, I remind myself, the scriptures whisper, God is always at work. He, he's always doing something. There's always something happening, even if it's kind of quiet and, and in the background. In the early 1900s, uh, following the Boxer Rebellion, most foreign missionaries were expelled from China. And according to reports of that time, many in the West, you know, uh, America, Britain in particular, uh, they despaired for the future of the Christian church in China. It's like, what are they going to do? They don't have any of the foreign missionaries to support this, you know, fledgling Christian church. But, of course, such fears were misplaced. And in the following decades, the Christian church in China grew to be the largest in the world. A lot of bad things were happening on the surface. A lot of people were being killed. But God was at work in the background. And now we stare around at a Canadian church where more churches become condos every year. And we're plagued by, by, by sin. And we're pretty small in number. And it's easy to get discouraged. But look, God is at work. He, he, he isn't asleep. He isn't like wringing his hands back. Like, oh man, what are we going to do about Canada? It's really messed up. The story whispers to us, God is still working in Canada. And maybe right now there's some little Samuel, some little Samuelette, you know, who's growing up, who, who's going to be used powerfully in the kingdom of God in Canada. We just can't see it because they're, they're five right now. If we forget that God is at work, then it's really easy to end up in one of two places. Frantic activity or numb despair. If we forget that God is at work, then some of us go around exhausting ourselves trying to fix everything right now. I may belong in this first camp. And look, if that's you, like, relax. (laughs) God is at work. He's doing things. You don't have to fix it all yourself. 
But others of us end up in numb despair and you've just given up hope. Nothing's gonna get better, it's gonna get worse. Like, hey, wake up, be ready. God is at work. He's at work in the background and he's at work in the foreground. Let's move to our last section. The steady growth, the development of Samuel, it doesn't answer all our questions. Because there's still sin happening, right? There's still these priests doing these bad things. God's still being mocked. Verse 27, and there came a man of God to Eli. God's not going to sit back and wait. He's going to deal with these guys. And he sends his man unnamed, which is just kind of great. But he sends his man to Eli. He has a three-part message. The first part of the message we've kind of covered, reminder of everything God did for Eli. Uh, you know, chose him, wear the, wear the ephod, offer the sacrifices. Then in the second part, which we did talk about, the accusation, you've scorned the, the sacrifices and offerings, you've honored your sons above me. We talked about it. The third part of the announcement is judgment. Because of Eli's sin, God says, I'm going to cut off your house, I'm going to cut off your descendants, eventually they're going to die out. And by the way, just in case you don't believe me, verse 34, the man of God offers Eli a sign. As proof, the prophecy will come true. He says, your two sons are both going to die on the same day. There are fearful consequences for sin that goes unchecked and unconfessed. And we see it here in the life of Eli and his family. God will not be mocked forever. He will not be dismissed. People who claim to be serving him, they're going to get found out. God is going to do something about it. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says, the judgment begins at the household of God. That when God gets busy setting everything right that's, that's gone wrong, he actually begins with his people. It's like, I got to deal with you first, and then we'll move on to everybody else. Now, the church in Canada, we've had big problems for a long time. Really long before maybe any of us came around. Perhaps the, de- the continued decline, perhaps the continued scandal, this may be part of God's judgment on his people. I don't know. What we do know is though, though God often moves in quiet background ways, sometimes he steps into the foreground with dramatic action. And if you come back two weeks or maybe three weeks from now, can't remember exactly, Hophni and Phineas, they are going to die on the same day. And if you skip forward to 1 Kings chapter 2, there we see Eli's house. It comes to an end. His descendants are deposed from the priesthood and the last descendant dies and there's no one to succeed him. There's no more house of Eli. But with our remaining time, I just want to consider the second part of this prophecy. Look at verse 35. This is God speaking. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. God says, I'm going to act. Eli, your sons, your sons, sons, you're out. I'm going to replace them with a faithful priest. Now, before this week, as of like Tuesday, I always thought this prophecy referred to Samuel, right? He's the golden child. Everyone loves him. He's already got like the white robe and stuff like that. There's two problems though with this prophecy referring to Samuel. The first is Samuel is never called a priest. He does priestly things, but according to 1 Samuel, he's a judge and a prophet. Second, the faithful priest will need faithful descendants. And unfortunately, Samuel's sons, not great either, have their own problems. So it's kind of hard to see how Samuel could be a fulfillment of this prophecy. So who is it? 
Who is this referring to? I think the best answer is there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, and I'll do this quickly. The near fulfillment is in 1 Kings 2. Eli's house passes away, and, and this guy named Zadok uh, is appointed by Solomon to be the high priest. And as far as we know, there aren't a lot of details given, but his family seems to serve faithfully. He's a good high priest. He's faithful in his role. But of course, he couldn't be perfect. His sons couldn't be perfect, and they haven't continued forever. The temple didn't continue forever. So I think that in the far fulfillment, this man of God is pointing beyond the Old Testament. He's talking about the one who will be the perfect priest over Israel, Jesus Christ. Listen, who will be the one who will do exactly what is in God's heart and mind? Well, it has to be God. Who's going to have a sure inheritance, solid forever? It has to be Jesus. Who will serve faithfully for all time? See, I think this passage creates in us a longing for a good priesthood. We look around at all the wreckage in the church caused by sin and we're like, how is this ever going to get better? How come good fathers, good parents keep having terrible children? How come priests keep sinning against the people they serve? Like we're like in a death spiral. How are we going to escape? What this passage creates in us is a longing, not even for a good priest, but a true priest. Like, where, where's the shepherd who's going who's gonna to keep us in line? Moreover, all of our priests and pastors and shepherds, they need a priest and a shepherd. Who is going to unlock us from the cycle of sin and death? Jesus. Only Jesus. So Jesus came to forgive and to free parents who sin against their children. He came to forgive and to free priests and leaders and pastors who sin against their people. And he came to lead all of us with disordered hearts back to himself. May Jesus rise in your hearts. Let's pray.